let's go learn from people who are smarter than us, who have more experience than us. That's our motto always, is there's always people smarter and more experienced than we are, and we're happy to partner with them in real estate. So. Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. This is Ellie Perlman, and today I have the pleasure of hosting Jonathan Bross. So Jonathan is the president of Brossland Investments and actually started in a property management role, then asset management, and then transitioned to VP of Investments. And today he's the president of the company. So Brossland Investments, they currently own 30 properties valued over $1 billion. So they own 5,000 doors, mainly multifamily value add, development, condo development, senior housing, office development. And also, they also do debt and equity loans. So as you can see, they're very diversified, you know, across the board. And under Jonathan's leadership, 15 assets have been sold, achieving over 21% IRR on average, which is, you know, very impressive. Jonathan, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been in touch, I think, in the past, I would say, year and a half or so. And I've always enjoyed speaking with you and understanding what you see on your, you know, in your end. And it was interesting to see how also your perspective hasn't changed that much, but is pretty much in line with, you know, how we see real estate and how we assess risk. So if you don't mind just telling us a little bit about your family office, where you're located, and we'll take it from there. Sure. So we are located in Toronto, Canada. So we are the nice Canadian investors looking to the US. And really, we're family office. We started back in 2008. And really, my story intertwines with my father's story. And He had a previous company. He started from the ground up a true entrepreneur. It was in healthcare. And he sold it back in 2006 and said, you know, I want to try my hand at real estate investing, bought a couple buildings here just outside of the Toronto area and didn't really know what he was doing, bought it with one partner. And it was a learning experience to say the least. And he was involved in those for about a year or so before I came and joined him after I finished my academics. I was on my way to becoming a teacher, professor of history, and had spent a summer in, in the office here learning about what uh, my father was doing in real estate and said, uh, I don't think I'm going to leave. And he said, well, if you're going to stay, you got to at least learn something you know, yourself. So go be the property manager for these buildings I bought. So I did. That was very tough. These were not great buildings, very tough tenant population. And it was an uphill battle the entire time, but I learned a lot. And we then said, look, 
let's go learn from people who are smarter than us, who have more experience than us. That's our motto always, is there's always people smarter and more experienced than we are, and we're happy to partner with them in real estate. So always learning. So we did that. We started uh, partnering, becoming limited partner investors in buildings in, in Toronto. And then in 2010, the Canadian dollar was magically at par with the U.S. dollar. And we said, okay, let's find people down in the U.S. to do some of these same multifamily deals with. And we did that and have been going ever since. And really, we've been on that trajectory up until last year where we decided to open up a different company, a parallel company to our family office that helps syndicate real estate deals, U.S. real estate deals for Canadian investors here. And we'll invest in the same type of projects the family office invests in. So they're intertwined as well. So that's my story. That's awesome. I love how you started from the bottom and learned everything. It's, I think it gives you such good, you know, insights when you're looking to partner with, you know, a syndicator, when you're looking to do, you know, to co-GP with another family office, looking at their operations, you have that, you know, perspective and experience to evaluate the way that they operate their properties. Because I know that some family offices are not, I mean, they're writing a check and then they're not very involved or they don't oversee the day-to-day management. So they like to, you know, have someone else manage it. But it's definitely, you know, good that you have that experience so you can assess right away who's a good operator and who's not. Because everyone can buy a deal, but whether the deal's cash flowing every month, that's a whole nother story. For sure. And one of the things that I really or we have really been lucky enough over the years is we found some really great partners who when we asked like, hey, we're going to invest in this deal. We're a limited partner. Can I come shadow you? Can I come down there? Can I tour the buildings? Can I see what your property management is doing? Can I see your legal documents? Why are you doing this way? Why are you inserting this clause? And over the last decade or so, we've had some really great partners that have been completely transparent with us, which is what we look for in our partnerships. And they've taught me a ton. You know, when we're getting involved in the development, I like to go down to the site and see what the construction guys are doing and and learn what they're building and how they're building and why. So I got to give credit to them and and we just kind of go with the flow. That's really interesting. And I'm always curious to know how other family offices are evaluating an opportunity. So if you come across a certain operator, what are you looking for? You know, I can imagine that, you know, obviously you look at track record, you like to see if you you have that good, you know, feeling whether you can trust them. Is there kind of anything else that you're you're looking at when you're assessing whether someone is a good partner? Yeah, for sure. Like I mentioned, first and foremost, it's honesty and transparency above anything else. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have where partners aren't open and honest, aren't transparent, showing you numbers that aren't necessarily real. And you have to learn about that the hard way. Maybe you learn it Mm -hmm. in a deal or two. But first and foremost, with our partnerships, especially with our operators, it's transparency. So we'll ask them, Show us your legals, show us your partnership mm-hmm. document. Let us come down to a site you're already running. Let us talk to your property yep. management and so forth. And generally, I'd say 95% of the time, operators are open and transparent and willing to work with you to let you see what they're doing. And I recommend to other family offices, go and do this. You will never know what operators are doing 
privately on their own when they're running the deal, when you as a, as a limited partner don't really have a say in how the business thesis is going to be enacted, you got to go check it out yourself. You won't know otherwise. And you'll learn about it. And if you know it on one project, you can replicate it to others. The second thing is track record. What have you sold? Have you hit your marks on your performa versus actuals? Where are you invested in? What markets? What type of assets? These are all the things we, we look for with a partner. Awesome. And that makes, you know, total sense to kind of look at the track record. I think we're pretty much looking at the same, you know, the same things and trying to assess whether there is this partner can be a good partner. And obviously you can get it right 10 out of 10. Every single investment cannot be a home run, but you're doing your best and you'll learn who you can trust, who you cannot trust. You learn how to read those signs that you haven't paid much attention to at the beginning. I'm wondering, you know, what you see in the market, if we can switch, you know, the conversation a bit and talk about, you know, specifically multifamily, because that's the world that I operate in. When it comes to, you know, deal flow and, you know, the the type of deals that, what do you see right now in the market? Because 2020 was a tough year in that regard, because there were not many deals, you know, many owners decided to, well, first of all, they were scared to sell because they didn't know how much they can sell the property for. That was kind of the first couple months of the pandemic. But what do you see now in the market? Well, one of the common threads we've seen over 2020, and it's still spilling over into now, is just increased leverage on deals. We're seeing Mm -hmm. debt upon debt. Our risk tolerance is for lower leverage. So we will participate in deals that take on up to maximum 75% loan to value. Anything over and above that, we deem too risky. And what we've seen over 2020 is groups taking on you know, pretty safe senior debt, 65, 70%, but tacking on secondary mezzanine debt or preferred equity piece and taking the total leverage up to you know, 80, 85, I've seen even 90%. And especially during COVID where, and we've discussed this between you and I, is that when you have increased bad debt and increased concessions and increased vacancy and your cash flow starts taking a hit, that higher leverage scenario is going to become a real problem. You're going to have a cash flow crunch. And then the operators are going to start calling the investors for more capital to keep the building afloat. Or they have to find even more debt to keep the building afloat. And that's where you get into lots of trouble. So we stay away from those. That's what I've been seeing so far. The other thing I've been seeing is a lot of deals in areas that are considered C, C plus, not so Mm -hmm. great areas, but are framed to family offices as up and coming areas. Look, people make a lot of money in those buildings. There's no question about that. And it's a lot of groups, you know, bread and butter to see buildings and see areas and turn them around. And that's all well and good. For us, it's a little too risky as well. We'll participate in a C building and put in a value add program in place, but it's got to be in an A area. I guess that's what the saying is. You always buy the worst building in the best area, right? Yeah. Yeah. The hardest deals to find. Exactly. Us and everyone else out there are looking for the same deal. So that's created increased competition, compressed Mm -hmm. cap rates all across the markets around the US. Uh, You're not going to find a deal anywhere by any means, even though people are looking for one. So that's kind of what we're seeing. So there's a lot of discrepancy being used with the deals that are coming across our desk. And hopefully we find risk-adjusted deals that are safe, but also have, have solid returns for us. 
you know, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to C assets. I think it was, maybe it was a good kind of bet five years ago, six years ago. I believe that those type of investments may be good when you come in out of a recession and more jobs are added. So you have less exposure to high bad debt and high delinquencies that can, you know, basically hurt your bottom line, your bottom line cash flow. Because what's happening, and I, th- I think we talked about it before, and that's just my theory, that after the last crash in 2007, you had a lot of single family homeowners that ended up, you know, giving the bank the house back because they wouldn't be able, they weren't able to pay their mortgages and they had to live somewhere because they didn't want to end up in the street. So where are they going to go? They're low income earners they can rent apartments instead of owning a house, but they can't really go to the class A buildings. You know, these are kind of lifestyle multifamily where, you know, it's, you know, $1,500, $2,000 a month for two bedrooms. That's not very within their reach. So class C assets were the perfect fit for them. And so class C was like you mentioned, you know, a lot of sponsors, a lot of investors made a lot of money on class C buildings. But right now, this is the asset class. And of course, there are outliers, but this is the asset class that is struggling the most. Because if you think about it, the tenant base is more exposed to COVID, you know, impact because they're working in the service industry and in other small businesses that, you know, had to furlough people. So you see the rent collections pretty low compared to, you know, class B and A assets, class C is right now is struggling. So what was maybe the most, I don't know if the the best investment, but a very interesting investment in cash flow terms up to a few years ago now became a struggling asset class. Right. And I should also mention on top of that is that with the increased competition and increased development of multifamily product across the markets, you're seeing that the difference between a B product and a C product in the rent is not that big anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you can afford a $900 rent, you could probably afford 980 in that B building and have a nicer product. So now the C people are moving up to the B product and that's creating another shortage of occupancy in those C class products. So I, I just wanted to toss that in there. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's that's a very, very good point. And I can tell you that we purchased, that was in Texas, actually, a B asset. And we didn't think that across the street, there was a nice class A building. And the gap was $400. But then at some point, they decided to compete with us. And let me tell you, that was very challenging because when they competed with us, the gap almost disappeared. And you think they're not going to cut you know, their rents or prices by $400. Well... When they're at 70% occupancy, they will do it. It has created something weird in the marketplace where you're seeing 95, 96% occupancies in buildings, but you're getting maybe 85% revenues because of your concession mm-hmm. that you have to give to compete with the guy across the street who's also giving concessions. It's something strange is happening. And I'm trying to figure out how this all plays together because like I said, cap rates are compressed. People are still buying these buildings at the same pre-COVID prices. Right. But revenues are down. Bad debt and concessions are up. Expenses maybe are down a little because you cut property management staffing and, and mm-hmm. maybe yep. implementing a capital program during COVID. 
there, something's got to give here. And I think everything that's propping this up is debt <laughs> and the cheap debt and money it takes to run these buildings. And if debt rises, which I don't think it's going to anytime soon, if interest rates rise, maybe by the end of 2021, maybe they're going to look raising interest rates a little bit. But there's something dangerous maybe on the horizon. I don't know yet. Don't quote me, but something to look out for. That's a very interesting point. I think that when it comes to that, yeah, we, we're not going to see much movement maybe towards the end of the year or the beginning of 2022. And I think what you've mentioned is so important, the increase in bad debt, which is all the rents, you know, that cannot be collected because someone, let's say, skipped in the middle of the night or just moved out and said, sorry, I don't have the money to pay you. Yes, there is a problem there. But, you know, I have two thoughts about that. A, it all boils down to the underwriting. If you're looking at the trend in the last 12 months, nine months, six months, three months, one month, you see where the property is going in terms of bad debt, and you underwrite assuming that in the next at least two years, the situation is going to be worse, and maybe occupancy is going to go down a bit, and rents, you might not be able to raise them at all in the first six to 12 months. If the deal still works, then it's a good deal. But guess what? 99% of deals do not. The deal's just going to die right there. So, Have you seen, I know I've seen deals where groups are still underwriting rent increases over the next year, 2%, 3% rent increases. Are you still seeing that as well? Or are you seeing groups taking a more conservative approach and, and showing underwriting in their performance or prospectuses where it's flat, let's say, for the next two years or even a decrease over the next year? There's a handful of groups, and we're included in them, that basically underwrite to zero rent increases in the next six to 12 months. Most groups are underwriting two, three, four, five percent, which what allows them to believe that the price is higher, that the valuation is higher than the actual valuation. Even though I have to say that in some markets, even during COVID, there are operators that are able to push rents. And that's the case, you know, even with us. And I'm still not going to underwrite to two, four, five percent. So the deal we just purchased in Atlanta, we underwritten the deal with zero percent rent increases in the first 12 months. First couple of weeks of operations, we're raising rents six to nine percent. We haven't even renovated the units. So that's a good buffer. But I may need to give some more, you know, maybe concessions are going to be slightly higher because I would want to make sure that more tenants move in, at least at first. So it's always good to kind of operate under worst case scenario and operate as if there's no COVID and try and test the market out. So sometimes the owners, you know, the management is not great and you can see right away when you do market research that there's, you know, let's say the submarket is at $1.15 per square foot and this property is a dollar. So you can see that there is an opportunity there. I think the vast majority of, of companies are, and operators are still assuming a positive rent growth during the first year. It's not necessarily going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where as a family office for, for all the family offices out there and, and individual investors, you really have to, you know, you'll read the performance, you'll see what operators are giving to you. And at the end of the day, you just have to make a judgment call and say, okay, 
they're underwriting, you know, a 2% increase. Is that real? And if it's not, okay, if it stays flat, then what does it do to the numbers? Mm -hmm. And if it's not a big change, okay, I'm comfortable with that. I can still participate in the deal. So really, this is all an exercise in risk tolerance and just making sure you're okay with the group you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the second thought that I have is that the reason why we don't see many assets struggling is because, you know, on one hand, we have, you know, stimulus checks in the second round now, and there's also a program for rent assistance. So basically, very soon, landlords can apply on behalf of their tenants to get money from the government directly to pay their bills and pay, you know, utilities and pay rent. So that's going to help a lot. And that includes past due rent. So all the bad debt. So I think this year we'll be able to collect more, you know, have a positive write-off so we can collect more of the debt that we thought we're never going to be able to collect. So we're not forgiving any debt at this point. And in addition, unlike the previous CARES Act, when it comes to eviction moratorium. So the first one prohibited from everyone, you know, we couldn't even file an eviction this time around. Yes, it has been extended, I believe, until the end of March, but you can start the process and you only have to stop once the tenant does their own research and they sign on a declaration that basically says, I've lost my job, I cannot pay. And if you're going to evict me, I'm going to end up in the street. And we have actually we have been evicting tenants that just ignored us. We knock on doors, we call, they don't return calls. And in Atlanta, just last week on Friday, we had the sheriff come and evict two tenants. And when the community saw that we are continuing with evictions, they basically, we got phone calls to the leasing office saying, I have the money, I'm coming to pay rent, do not evict me. So some tenants are taking advantage of the situation. They have the cash and they say, oh, I don't think I I think I can get away with it. Yeah, we saw that in the Denver market. We have a few assets and and we had tenants that just refused to pay. They still they were still working. They still had the Mm. job. They they had the money, but just took advantage. And you're going to get some some people that are like that for sure. I should note that, look, COVID is a terrible situation. There's mass unemployment. People are suffering. I don't think landlords want to evict tenants. If people can pay their rent and can do so or can work out a deal with the landlord, I just want to put that caveat in there that landlords are, are willing to work with tenants 100% of the time. Absolutely. They want to see tenants leave, right? But yes, there are bad apples out there who take advantage of situations. And unfortunately, you have to deal with them accordingly. Yeah, I couldn't have said it, you know, any better. It's it's absolutely right. When you evict someone, you're most likely not going to see a dollar, you know, from the rent that is past you. We've worked with tenants, kind of, you know, payment plan. We've also found technologies that allow, the technologies allow tenants to pay their rents in full, but it's kind of a line of credit for those tenants. So they pay in installments for that third-party company. I'm not sure how many installments there are if there are three or five, but that's another way of kind of helping tenants to pay the rent. So eviction is only going to come at the end when there's like, we tried everything, right? And we couldn't do it. But for the most part, you know, it's pretty interesting that over 90% of within the class B, you know, assets in the US, over 90% of rents have been collected. 
And so it's interesting because when COVID hit, we thought that the skies, you know, is falling, that we're not going to be able to pay our, you know, mortgage and our bills. And it hasn't been that significant, but I think it's going to take a little bit of, of time until we're kind of out of this situation completely. For sure. For sure. We're, we're, I think, a bit of ways away. We need some, a little help, a little vaccine, and then we should be okay. But yes, we got to still be patient and, and it'll take some time to come back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Last thing I wanted to discuss with you is, you know, what do you think is going to happen this year? Or what, what are you focused on? What's your family office is focused on in today's market in, you know, in 2021? So honestly, what we're seeing is uh, who knows? Can't even, I, I couldn't, we're honestly taking it deal by deal, seeing what deals come across our desk and assessing them really on an individual basis. What we're specifically looking for, we are looking for more cash flowing assets in top markets. So we have a few markets that we're targeting, specifically the Phoenix, Dallas, Tampa, Charlotte, Nashville, Salt Lake City, Raleigh, Durham. And those are our what we call our core markets right now that we're looking at. And then we have a few markets that are on our radar that are that we're catching a glimpse of that we're keeping an eye on because those are, you know, up and coming. There's some, there's some population growth, some job growth in those markets, and there may be able to be implemented a value add play on these class B assets where you can make those higher returns, but there's a little more risk to it. And those markets mm-hmm. we find are Boise, Idaho, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Reno, Nevada, and the Sacramento area of California. So we're keeping an eye on those. We're not sure if we will invest in those markets, but those will be the higher return, higher risk markets we're looking at. But really, like I said, it's deal by deal basis and and see what comes. All right. Well, we have arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready, Jonathan? I am ready. All right. First question is, what's your favorite hobby? I would say it's it's cooking. I'm a food guy. Cooking. I'm watching the Food Network. Wow. What's your favorite dish? Oh, boy. I used to be a big like paella maker, risotto maker, but I don't eat rice anymore. Trying to shed a couple pounds. So, yeah, that, that was my bread and butter go-to. Got it. Wow. Okay. I did not expect this. <laughs> and what's the one thing that people don't know about you besides that you like to cook because you just told us this? Well, a lot of people don't know that I'm expecting my third child in June. Ah, Gemini, like me. Okay, good luck. What do you wish that you had known when you just started getting involved in real estate? Trust but verify. Something Mm. my father always taught me, but I wish I knew it right from the beginning because I like to trust people a lot but not verify. I have started to verify a lot more lately. Good advice. All right. And then what's your number one advice for a high net worth individual or a family office that, you know, want to scale and grow their portfolio in 2021? Like I mentioned at the beginning of this, find people smarter than you and more experienced than you. You will learn a ton People who have been doing this for a long time know what they're doing. And there's one barrier to entry with real estate investing, and that's having money. If you have money to invest, then the process of real estate investing is replicable. 
You could do it across state lines. You find a class B in, in Denver, you can do the same value add program in a building in San Antonio. It doesn't matter. Learn from people and ask a lot of questions. All right. So Jonathan, if someone wants to reach out to you and discuss, you know, mutual investments or anything else related to real estate investing, where can people find you? People can find me. We have a website for our family office, actually, it says the type of projects we invest, shows the assets we're invested in. It's brosslandinvestments.com. For our equity syndication company, it's cameronstreetinvestments.com. And really, that's geared towards Canadian investors looking to the U.S. market to invest in multifamily product. Or I like to say I'm an open book. So at jbross at brossland.com is my email. Shoot me an email. I'm happy to take a call, answer questions, and just talk about real estate. All right. Awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much for spending the last, you know, 30 minutes with me. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and insights and experience with our listeners. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. So that's it for today. Be bold, be great, and keep moving forward. And I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.